0: You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 22. Beryl. It's probably my favourite family photo, perhaps my favourite photo of all time. It doesn't simply languish in an album or in a desktop folder full of scans. The photo has been enlarged and framed and proudly hangs on our living room wall. It's a black-and-white group shot of Dad with four friends. All five of them look incredibly cool, as cool and stylish, in fact, as the late 1940s Paris, where it was snapped. On the left is Muriel Dobkin, later to become PA and gatekeeper to Larry Parnes, and then Lionel Bart, perched on a window ledge with that morning's newspaper. On the right, sporting a twin set and strappy shoes, and in deep intellectual discussion with my father, stands Beryl Lund, famous for 15 minutes as Red Beryl. In 1948, the British government was keen not to be outdone by the United States in its anti-communist fervour. Despite being elected by a landslide on a broadly socialist platform, despite bringing the major utilities into public ownership, despite even the creation of the NHS, the Attlee government of the 1940s were keen cold warriors. They wanted to purge our public services of all communist influence and to send a suitably belligerent message to their Kremlin playmasters that Reds are not welcome here. But there was a snag, namely, what communists? They pored over the records of government-employed civil servants, academics and the military only to find a backbone of stout Yeoman patriotism running through the entire body politic. Eventually, and no doubt with much relief, they stumbled upon Beryl Lund, a junior clerk working at the Ministry of Supply in Whitehall, the branch of government that ensured our three armed forces had enough bullets, tarpaulins and helmets for its personnel, and brill cream for its fighter pilots. By day, Beryl beavered away with quiet efficiency in the service of His Majesty's Government, and by night she sparkled on stage at Unity Theatre in London's Islington. It was her involvement with the latter which caused her problems. Listeners to earlier episodes may have already learned something about Unity. It was a small but expertly run theatre company which specialised in producing plays and entertainment from a left-wing perspective. It is important to emphasise that Unity wasn't affiliated to any party, be it Labour or Communist. In fact, as is still common on the left, it made a point of criticising any aspect of the political left if it took a wrong or, in too many cases, brutal turn. And Unity didn't pull its punches over the Labour government of the late 1940s. 1948 was the year Unity staged a hugely successful satirical review called What's Left, which aimed its laser-like glare at the failure of the Labour government to fulfil its post-war promise. The national newspaper critics raved, the show sold out, and the audience for Unity expanded beyond its lefty catchment to become the epitome of chic, its short run was extended, and What's Left still occupied the Unity Theatre stage a hundred performances later. We should remember that this was some years before the likes of John Osborne and Arnold Wesker supposedly rewrote the rulebook of rebellious theatre. So a show like What's Left filled a cultural vacuum for those tiring of Coward, Ratigan, and Old Witch farces, and sent a stage every night... Singled out by the critics for particular praise was Miss Beryl Lund, junior clerk at the Ministry of Supply. I cannot speak for the actions of some of the more outre overseas regimes of the past, but I strongly doubt whether in the UK, prior to this, a critically acclaimed comedy show had ever resulted in anyone being singled out as a threat to national security. Whatever the ins and outs, Once Beryl's connection with unity came to light, it gave the British government and the security services sufficient grounds to suspend her from her job. They didn't mince words either, telling the press that in belonging to the caste of what's left, she "...associated with the Communist Party in such a way as to raise legitimate doubts as to her reliability." I found this quote within the main headline article in the London Evening Standard of October 5th, 1948. The article goes on to say, Miss Lund, who is slight and brunette, still speaks with a Yorkshire accent. And this gives some indication as to why it became, for a short time, headline news, why it inspired newspaper cartoons by the likes of Lowe and Vicky, and why it even led to questions in Parliament. An objectively pretty, intelligent woman from Bradford finds herself thrown out of a job she's been doing competently and reliably for nearly a decade, and for no other reason than a government trying to look as if it's doing something about the Red Menace. Beryl never made a secret of her political affiliations, either to friends or work colleagues. And while all this was going on, at the top of the same security apparatus that deemed Beryl a threat, Kim Philby, Guy Burgess and Lord knows who else were happily hiding behind their Eton and Westminster old boy networks to work for the KGB. Following Beryl's suspension and the press ridicule of those behind it, the government did what it usually does under such circumstances and quietly fudged the issue into oblivion. Instead of sacking her, they moved Beryl to the Ministry of Education and gave her a lowly filing job in the windowless basement of the Science Museum. She left the role soon after, and travelled to Italy with a group of friends, stopping off at Paris on the way where the photo in question was snapped. Once in Rome, she got a job singing in a nightclub for a while, and hooked up with her future husband, Valio, an erstwhile officer in the Italian Partisans. I first learned the story of Red Beryl, on my 13th birthday, spent with my family at Beryl and Valio's house in Hertfordshire, where several scrapbooks full of press clippings and photos brought back to life Beryl's own little corner of the Cold War. By this time, they ran a husband and wife art direction business and agency, mainly providing illustrators and designers for comics and teenage magazines. And, for better or worse, in this capacity, Beryl has been cited as responsible, back in the 1950s, for inventing the live-action cartoon strips with speech bubbles seen in magazines such as My Guy and Jackie. A few decades later, in 1991, Bill Owen, the former artistic director of Unity Theatre, found time between playing Compo in Last of the Summer Wine to relaunch the company. True to their roots, they staged a satirical review to raise funds for the new Unity and asked me to donate a song. I already had a bottom drawer full of songs rejected by my group, The Draylon Underground, and gave them a number I was rather fond of, a rock-and-roll satire on private medicine called I Sold My Heart to Bupa. It was nice to see one of my favourite cast-offs performed live by someone else, but it was even nicer to see Beryl, now in her 70s, and looking as bright and charismatic as she did four decades earlier, downstage and singing backing vocals. She was still giving interviews about her time as Red Beryl well into this century, still bitter about her treatment at the hands of the British government, and railing against the continued hypocrisy of the establishment. The last surviving cast member of What's Left, she died in 2018, aged 96. That was Beryl, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.